this episode of the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Brian Lomax. And I'm Josh Berger. And in today's episode, we'd like to discuss Wimbledon and recap uh, both on the men's side and on the women's side. Um, and to do this, we'll, we're going to start a little bit by discussing a couple of quotes from uh, the finalist, Karolina Pushkova, um, as well as the champion, Ash Barty. And um, a couple of the quotes from their press conferences, as well as uh, certain aspects of the match. Um, and also talk about the men's final, um, in which uh, Djokovic um, won his 20th Grand Slam title, tying, of course, Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal, um, and which he faced uh, Matteo Berrettini in his first Grand Slam final. Um, so, Brian, to, to get us started, why don't we uh, present a couple of these quotes from the, from the women's uh, finalist and champion? Sure. Um, and let's start with uh, the, the runner-up, Karolina Pliskova. Um, you know, for those of us who watched the match, obviously Pliskova didn't get off to the start that she wanted. And, and she def- definitely discussed that in, in, her, um, in her press conference, losing the first 14 points. Uh, she also attributed some of that to, to Ash Barty playing very well at the at the opening of the match, right? So it wasn't 100% say nerves or whatever. But I think um, you know, if we look at this from a tennis IQ or even a sports psych perspective, losing the first 14 points of the match and she still could have won the set, right? Still could have won the match even. And so it it tells you that you're never out of this type of thing. And I think that's what Pliskova realized, uh, you know, a player of her experience understands that it really doesn't matter if you lose the first three games by not winning any points. Um, you can always come back from that, you know? And so I thought that was really uh, impressive the way she did kind of get herself back into the set more or less, and then played a great second and then a, a really close um, third set. So I think Josh, you know, when we think of uh, Pliskova, she's someone we've seen a lot of, but she's sort of under the radar about how good she is. She's been in the top 10 for a long time. I think, you know, she was out of it maybe just before Wimbledon, but this result gets her back into the top 10. Uh, she's been a finalist at the U.S. Open, now a finalist at Wimbledon. And so she was asked about, um, you know, does this re this, this result reinforce her belief in, in the ability to, to win one of these titles? Um, and her, I think her answer was, was interesting. And, and we can compare this later to uh, something that Novak Djokovic said with respect to self-belief as well. So her answer was, you know, I would say um, in terms of reinforcing your belief that this is very important. It's not that I would never believe, of course, me personally with my game, with my team right now, with all the people, which I really care about around me and with my game, I always believe in that. Um, but she shifted a little bit and then said, but I think many people, they don't believe. Um, and I think she's probably right about that. Um, self-belief is such an important aspect of being mentally tough, of being a great competitor. Um, and so I think it's really nice that, uh, uh, I don't know, nice, but you know, it's, it's um, sort of insightful on her part to, to bring that up because it is, as she mentions that it can be difficult to maintain that self-belief, especially in a sport where there's always a winner and a loser. Um, and, uh, you know, even within a match, every point has a winner and a loser. So it can be difficult to maintain that self-belief and, 
and it's such an important skill. So I thought it was really interesting that she talked more about that, um, that this result actually increased her belief uh, going into the, into the U S open, um, uh, you know, and the understanding, Hey, she's played a final there. So, you know, it's not impossible and she'll just keep, keep trying. So uh, you know, what are your thoughts on self-belief Josh as a, as a key component of mental toughness? Yeah, well, it's, it's definitely an essential component of mental toughness. I mean, we've talked before how, you know, the research certainly backs this up that um, different research into mental toughness has shown that it's really an essential ingredient um, among with, uh, you know, other aspects, including confidence, including resilience, um, but this ability to believe that you are capable of winning, where it's not, you don't go into a match uh, being so impressed or putting somebody else up on a pedestal. It's not saying not to respect your opponents, but it's that having that confidence that you are capable of winning, of getting the job done. Um, and I also like from this quote how, you know, she said, I, I think many people don't, you know, they don't, they don't necessarily always believe that they could win. And she also says, um, of course, the game is not always, you can't always play well. Um, so it's about finding that balance. And I think this is an important point because that wrecking, you want to, in my opinion, you want to go in with certain realistic expectations that, hey, it's not always going to be pretty. I'm not always going to feel great or play my best. But that doesn't mean that I am going to give up on those days. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to try to find a way. Maybe there's a plan B. Maybe I have to make adjustments. Maybe I have to just put in that time and find my game on that given day. But understanding that, hey, it's not always going to go well or be pretty, but I have to be able to figure it out on those days. And regardless of that, I still have that self-belief in myself and in my game to get the job done. Even on those off days, even on those days where you wake up on the wrong side of the bed, you have the tools, and those might be tools within your game. Those might be mental tools that you could use to get yourself to the finish line. Yeah. That reminds me of the quote from Jack Nicholas, you know, the great golfer won 18 majors who uh, talked about something called the art of playing badly well and how, you know, on those days where you're not playing your best, you don't have it physically. You have to use your mental and emotional game to help you compete. And, and what he said was that's what distinguished the greats from everybody else was, they were able to do that. Um, and it is, it, it's true. It's like, can you play poorly physically, but still keep yourself in the match, still believe and use what you have. Right. And um, I'll often tell students, you know, most people are playing badly, badly, you know, as opposed to playing badly well. Um, and so I think uh, that that is an important part of, uh, of being mentally tough and recognizing um, that I think belief is what drives that belief yep. and confidence, and maybe even experience that you've done these types of things before uh, that you have the ability to, to come through. I thought the other uh, thing that was interesting from Carolina Pliskova was talking about the idea of knowing how to lose, which I think in reading what she was saying is really more about handling losses um, being gracious about that, uh, especially in a sport in which, um, like we said, there's always going to be a winner and a loser. 
Um, and so she was asked, uh, you know, have you always known how to lose? How has that changed over your career? And she says, no, not always. I think that's something that you also have to learn. Uh, you have to know how to learn how to win, but you also have to learn how to lose. Um, those are things that, that are definitely need to be, to be learned. Um, and I think where she was going uh, with a lot of this was the idea of how does one behave after a loss? Um, it is natural, of course, to be disappointed after a loss. But, you know, how do you behave out on the court um, when you lose? And I think actually this is this is an opinion, Josh. I think players today handle losing really well in comparison to the past. Um, I think in, in past years, you would never see a player who lost stop and give autographs. Um, and I think these days it's more the norm that you do see that happen. Um, so I, I'm generally impressed with how today's players handle losing that they I think in general, they're, they are very gracious about it. I think we see more camaraderie between the players, more empathy between the players about what's going on out there. Certainly from when I was a kid, uh, in the seventies and eighties, professional tennis was a little different. Um, there was not, there was, there was, I would say little camaraderie, uh, on the court. Uh, the, some of the bigger names were much more adversarial, uh, in nature, but I, I really like the way, um, players have developed in terms of this. And so I think Pliskova brought this up because, um, she unexpectedly for herself, I think ended up crying on the court, which is not something she would normally do. Not something she normally plans to do. <laughs> she maybe planned to cry in her room. Um, but it ended up happening out on the court. But um, I do think it's an interesting uh, topic to talk about knowing how to lose, but also knowing how to win um, and doing both with, with grace and modesty and humility um, and, and really recognizing that it's a, it's a great, it's a reflection on your character as a player. Definitely is a reflection on your character and every loss and every, every win to an extent um, there are learn teachable moments and there are learning opportunities there. Yeah. So viewing losses in the right way as stepping stones and as important as important milestones to the improvement process um, is very important, as well as how you conduct yourself, as you were talking about. Um, so yeah, I think it it takes a certain type of maturity to understand that. Where I don't think most players you know as they start to compete and they they start to play tournaments and they care about winning um, oftentimes it, it does take time to to learn how to lose in the right kind of way um, I, I think you know especially for players that, that reach the highest levels of the game uh, most players have been at the top of their region at the very least and oftentimes at the top of their country in the rankings since they were a young age, which means yeah. they were doing a lot of winning and probably a lot less losing in comparison or less first round losses or blowout losses or anything like that. And then all of a sudden players are playing at the professional ranks uh, where, as we've talked about in the past, it's, it's a grind and nobody goes through that unscathed. 
there are times where, you know, maybe you go through a losing streak of first round losses, or you would take a really bad loss. And in order to reach that highest level, you have to be able to deal with those moments and, you know, turn the other cheek at times and move, keep going and learn from them ultimately so that they don't continue to happen. So I, I, I think this is a really important point. I think it shows a lot of maturity from her um, and probably a big reason why uh, she has been able to reach, you know, this final for the first time uh, because of that maturity, because of that understanding of learning how to lose, but also, you know, maybe a greater understanding of her game in general. Yeah. And who she is as a, yep. as a human being. And that brings me to the, the last quote I wanted to discuss um, with respect to the women's final. So Ash Barty was asked about, um, uh, you know, she's respected as someone who's humble, kind, and a nice person. Um, and, you know, and, and why is that, you know, important to her? And so um, I think I'll, I'll read her whole uh, answer to this because I think it, um, we can also tie it back to a previous episode that we had. So she said, I think I've just tried to live by my values that my parents instilled in me. I mean, it's more important to be a good person than it is a good tennis player. So I think that's always my priority is making sure that I'm a good human being. Being able to learn from my parents and my siblings, my family was a massive part of my upbringing. I was just extremely lucky that I was able to have an opportunity to learn how to play the game of tennis. But I think being a good human being is absolutely my priority every single day. So that reminded me of our interview with Brian Barker. Um, I think that was maybe episode two. And, um, and how he tried as a young player to focus on being the best person that he could be. And, and that was also a means of reducing the amount of pressure that he feels. And I know that Brian continues to work with players on that particular philosophy. Um, you know, to help them be the best people they can be. And he's very invested and engaged in their careers and as a way of, of reducing the pressure. So this, I think, you know, what Pliskova was saying about being gracious and handling losses really translates here as well. It's about, you know, can we not only be great tennis players, but can we be great human beings? And that's where I think I'm really impressed with uh, many of the top players in, in today's men's and women's game that they have embraced that. And, um, you know, if we, we typically talk about pro athletes being role models, you, there are probably pros and cons to that, right? Because they are human beings. Um, but we're, we're lucky, I think, in the sport of tennis that we have some, some really fantastic players uh, who can uh, you know, be role models for behavior on the court and off the court. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we've talked in the past about Nadal and Federer as well as Serena and a number of the champions. And uh, I mean, Djokovic, Barty would be a great example too. And how they conduct themselves is really an example of how all tennis players should be, all tennis players and people should be conducting themselves on and off the court. And I think they've embraced the fact that they're under the microscope, they're in the spotlight and that, People are watching, kids are watching, and not that they haven't made mistakes, but um, understanding that they have a great opportunity here to instill some of these values that are 
really important um, in terms of having the type of character skills that um, will help you on court, help you to win more in terms of, you know, maybe things like your work ethic and things of that nature, but um, are what will help you in life. And so I, I, I really like that she touched on that. I mean, I think she comes across as very, very likable, very personable. And uh, yeah, this definitely does relate to that conversation with Brian Barker. So if you haven't listened to that, definitely worth checking out our first interview and definitely uh, a conversation where, yeah, he really stresses that importance of doing your best and trying to be a good person and not focusing too much on that result and that outcome. Um, So I think that's a really important point and definitely a lot of overlap there. Yeah. So let's move then to um, Novak Djokovic. Yep. And I know uh, there were certain, um, things from his press conference, Josh, that you really wanted to point out. I mean, there's, uh, we, we can put a a link to the transcript, but there's, there's a lot of gold stuff in there, um, for any of us. And I think when we, um, listen to Novak Djokovic or, or read his press conference transcripts, there almost always are some good nuggets for the mental game. You know, he's, I think, of all of the players, I think he talks about it the most. I think, you know, Rafa maybe talks about it the second most um, in terms of those things. But there's always some great stuff. And let's face it, whether you're in the Novak Djokovic fan camp or not, um, he's the number one player in the world uh, by a long stretch at the moment. It's true. No, it's – I mean, going into this tournament – he was the clear favorite, especially with Nadal out. Federer recently have come, come back from his surgery. Um, so, yeah, he was the clear favorite. I would agree that, they, that he's created a lot of space between him and the rest of the pack and has also won the three Grand Slams at this point. And I know we were talking off air that his um, Olympic participation is in doubt over some of the restrictions there. Um, but he is certainly has a, has a chance for the, the grand slam, the calendar grand slam this year, and perhaps even the golden grand slam um, with an Olympic victory. If he chooses to play, it ends up uh, victorious. So it has definitely created a lot of space and uh, no, I, I um, a quote. So after his uh, title over Matteo Berrettini, um, a quote from his press conference really stood out to me. And it was, it's actually an extended quote. So um, I'll read portions of it, but I think there's really a lot of valuable nuggets here. And he's, he's definitely a person who has embraced um, a lot of different aspects of the mental game. Um, I think which will shine brightly. It will be pretty clear from this quote, but also his book, his book served to win, which was a lot about his diet and going gluten-free and, uh, you know, his transformation in terms of his diet, but also talked about a lot of other things, including aspects of the mental game, talks about visualization, talks about uh, mindfulness, uh, how he utilizes some of these mental tools. Um, So he's certainly someone who has embraced, publicly embraced a lot of aspects of the mental game. Um, But yeah, as it relates to this quote, the question was, and this is actually the final question of the press conference, The question was, when you're playing a match like that, 
and you're going through the pressure moments. Do you think at all about the his the history aspect? Again, he's going for his twentieth title to tie uh, Nadal and Federer, something he's been chasing his entire career. Um, or are you thoroughly, thoroughly in the moment? And what is your thought process like in those critical points? And he says, well, I think it's a constant battle on the court to stay present, to stay in the now, so to say. Oftentimes you're experiencing emotions and thoughts that would take you in the past, regret for not playing a certain ball or a certain point that you wanted to play, that you could have played, or the anticipation for the future. What if, what's going to happen? It's really a constant work of trying to bring those thoughts into the present moment. I feel like that's the biggest work that I have. Probably any athlete, particularly individual athletes, when you're present experiencing and seeing things in a very simple way, it's a tennis match, it's only the next point, you're there, then you're able to perform your best. So I think really a lot of valuable stuff there. Actually, I would say a lot of overlap to a lot of themes that we've talked about in the past, that um, necessity and goal of being present as often as possible and not getting caught in the past, um, being upset about why you played a point a certain way or why the score is the way it is. Um, We're also thinking about the future, thinking about the what ifs. And he really touched on that and and says that that is um, the most important thing. Um, so I think that that certainly says a lot um, and that, you know, you want to, you know, that to, to me that we, we want to set this out as our goal or as one of our goals to be, to you know, most of the time to be present um, to remember that that next point, as Brian has, has said oftentimes, that next point is the most important point. It's not whatever just happened. It's not that point. It's not match point that, that might be around the corner. It's that next point. And he touches on this too, that it's it's a tennis match. It's only the next point. You're there, then you're able to perform your best. So if we could stay present, if we can focus on playing that next point as well as we possibly can, that's how we can give ourselves that best possible chance to perform well, regardless of the outcome, regardless of what might happen. Yeah, and I think the part, what you just ended on is, is the part that really stood out to me and, and um, perhaps simplifying the whole process down right because he says seeing things in a very simple way hey it's just a tennis match it's only the next point and it doesn't really matter how we got here it doesn't matter what's going to happen in five minutes from now it's can you just simplify things down this is just a tennis match and this is just a point and i'm going to play it and, and, and then you go from there. Um, you know, I love the idea of, of, of simplify, you know, we, we live in new England. So, uh, Henry David Thoreau, you know, philosopher, um, you know, from Concord, Massachusetts and, uh, wrote Walden, um, you know, talks about simplifying things and how that is always a good, good choice. And I think it's the same thing in, in a sport like tennis, the more that you can simplify things down to the essentials. Um, and then focus on those things and being in the present moment. Uh, it certainly helps. And, you know, when he talks like this, it, it reminds me of those match points he faced against Federer in the 2019 final, you know, when Federer was serving at 40-15. Um, my guess is that at, in that moment, Novak was able to just sort of play this point. 
And he did the same thing. I think you brought this up, you know, that time at the U.S. Open when he, same thing, Fritter serving 40-15 match point, and he slaps a forehand winner. Like the um, 2011 uh, semifinals, the U.S. Yeah. Open. Yeah. And, and so that's a good example of just putting yourself in the moment and not really caring about what the score is or how you got there. You're able to just play. And, um, and he does that better than anybody. Absolutely. And not to get too off topic here, but we were talking, Brian and I were talking off air about the Hall of Fame Open. Um, that's our, our tournament going on right now in, in Newport, um, Newport, Rhode Island. And I was talking about a match of the qualifying between Ryan Harrison and Chris Eubanks that was 7-6-6-7-7-6, with the second set being 18-16 in the tiebreak, tiebreaker. Um, and uh, throughout the match, Chris Eubanks saved 12 match points before finally succumbing to the 13th. And what I noticed while watching is that on each of these match points, he was playing his game. He was going for his shots. He was playing aggressively, perhaps even more aggressively. So I think that comes back to this point that you're making with Djokovic that, hey, on match point, on any point, are we able to put aside everything else and really focus on being present, focus on this point, focus on what's important now and try to, you know, put aside that outcome of what might happen here. Hey, what if I miss? What if he aces me? What if I get aced? Um, who ultimately that's not what's important now. What's important is, Hey, what's my plan? Uh, we talked about the, the, we've talked many times about um, our routines in between points. Can we prepare during that preparation stage that third stage in the process can we prepare and maybe think about that first shot or that first and second shot that we want to play and how we want to set that point up and regardless of if it works out or not are we doing everything in our power to set ourselves up best for success Um, another thing i liked about this quote brian is uh he talks about again on this piece of mindfulness or piece of trying to stay present he says i feel like if you're constantly divided between uh, past and future, it's difficult to keep the quality of tennis that you really want. That's usually when players get tense, fold under pressure. It happens to me. Of course, I mean, I've been very fortunate to be so strong in the decisive moments of the biggest tournaments throughout my career. I lost also quite a bit of finals of Grand Slams where I felt like I was close to winning, but then I folded. As Michael Jordan used to say, I failed, I failed, I failed. That's why I succeeded at the end. Again, not a direct quote, but we've actually talked about this, this same quote uh, where Michael Jordan has said, hey, I, I've throughout my career, I've missed such and such so many shots. A uh, certain number of time I've been counted on to make the game winning shot and missed. And that, for those reasons, again, not a direct quote here, for those reasons, that's why I succeed. Uh, and he talks about this, you know, this is a learning process. It's a learning curve. Um, and through these experiences, through failure, through losses, uh, you're able to improve and you're able to, to ultimately win more. And I like that he's tying this aspect of staying present to that, to that process. Because, again, if that goal is to, to be present as often as possible, uh, we know that you're not going to do that 100% of the time. It's easier said than done. It's always that process of going from being lost in thought or going from being distracted to coming back to that present moment, which to me is really what mindfulness is, is that constant 
coming back to that present moment from thinking about the past or the future. Um, but he's, to me, that quote from him is that he views some of his past experiences of being tense under the under pressure as maybe moments where he wasn't being present, where he was, you know, caught up in the moment, caught up thinking about the future and learned from those experiences and through learning from those experiences that has made him the player that he is today, where he has 20 grand slams and the most weeks at number one and is making the case as, as strong as ever of being the, the greatest of all time. And we're not going to get into our thoughts on that, but certainly is making that case as strong as he ever has. No doubt. And I think when you talk about that learning process, Josh, it actually, it um, brings it back to what you said with respect to handling losses the right way. Yep. And, and that, that is a, a, when you handle losses the right way, you're able to look at them and learn from them and count them as experiences that can may help you to grow and become a great player. If we think about the career arc of Novak Djokovic, for a, a long period of time, among the top three, he was three. Yep. And uh, he suffered losses to both of those guys as well as to some other players. And he's been able to internalize all of that, learn from it. He mentioned, I think, after even one um, Australian Open final, maybe 2012, where he actually expressed some gratitude to Federer and Nadal for forcing him to raise his game in many ways to become the player that he really wanted to. Because if they hadn't done that, he wouldn't be the player he is today. And that's also an excellent viewpoint of how we look at our fellow competitors they are not always just standing between you and goals and in fact they are pushing you to be better so if you yeah. really want to if you want to beat somebody it's not about necessarily just beating them it's about all right how are you going to raise your standard how are you going to train harder work harder and, and and so forth and so that's um that's another aspect of his career that i find impressive and why i think um at the moment you would have to say he's probably going to end up with the most grand slams of the three of them. Uh, in terms of wear and tear, he's in the best condition of the three of them. Um, that's not to say that, you know, Rafael Nadal can't win some more French opens. He obviously could. And he, and he you know, has a, I would say a legitimate shot at winning the U S open. Um, but Novak Djokovic, I think, is going to be the favorite at at least three out of the four every year now. And and now he's he's proven he can also win in Paris. So he's obviously learned a ton here uh, through this whole process. And, and I think it ties, ties back to knowing how to lose properly and, and grow from it. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, he's, uh, again, I come back to this word of maturity. I think that's that has definitely come through in this, in this interview and in general, just, I think in the past, perhaps, and this is just my opinion here, perhaps what's turned off fans at, at certain moments has been um, maybe this, maybe a, a feeling of, um, you know, not that, that same level of um, 
behavior that we've come to um, really respect Nadal and, and Federer from. Um, we've, you know, they've been just such amazing role models throughout the years. And, you know, maybe at times he's had moments where has, has not lived up to that standard in, in certain ways. But I, I think this interview, as well as his, um, as, as well as, as the way he now presents himself, I'd say over the, the past few years has really shown to me a lot of maturity in terms of how he presents himself, in terms of the level of respect that he gives to um, his opponents, as well as his greatest rivals, which are really Nadal and Federer historically. Um, and I think that's really impressive. And I think, uh, you know, I think he's, he deserves all the credit that he's been getting recently and perhaps more. I mean, I think everything that he's done, the way that he has gone from, as you said, Brian, somebody that was spent a lot of time in that number three position behind Federer and Nadal, where they were having these, these epic finals, these Wimbledon finals and finals, different places and winning uh, year after year, Nadal winning in Paris, as well as other Grand Slams, um, and Federer uh, really dominating the much of the 2000s, and him being at number three, and rather than saying, "Okay, you know, I have a great career here, I'm one of the top players in the world," thinking, "Okay, what can I do better? What's going to help take me to that next level?" And I, I really would suggest that book serve to win um, by him because it, it really talks about that process. It, it, it was really partially random how it happened where he was cramping on court. And uh, he tells the story of a doctor. I think it was a Serbian doctor saw it on TV and reached out to him and sort of led him on this journey where he changed his diet. He changed a lot of different aspects of his lifestyle and he credits those changes to um to ultimately bring him over, over that that hub to to get him to the number one position, where over the last decade he has really won more um, more Grand Slams than than any other player by by a decent margin. So um, kudos to him, and I yeah has had certainly showed a lot of maturity and a lot of growth, I would say, over the um, in recent years. And uh, yeah, that, that's. It's it's an interesting position now on the men's side where there's there's three players with with twenty grand slams and I think if you look back, you know at at the end of Sampras's career it would have been um, almost impossible to think that three players would surpass his his total of fourteen grand slams by by six grand slams each and and win twenty 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 I mean that's that's sixty grand slams between the three of them that's fifteen years total of grand slams just by three people. So certainly impressive by all three of them, but, you know, regarding Djokovic um, has certainly shown through this interview and through um, how he's presented himself, that he truly has a grasp of that importance of staying present and really learning from defeats and from experiences that you'd like to replay. So um, yeah. I said a lot there. <laughs> well, he's come a long way, I think, since you mentioned the retirements. You know, he retired, I think, one time famously against Andy Roddick at the Australian Open with the Heat, and, and Roddick, uh, you know, somewhat mocked him for him, for him at the time. Um, and now look where, where he is. Um, there's one other aspect of this transcript, this, um, this press conference that I'd like to go over 
uh, Josh, because I think um, it does touch on another important feature of mental toughness. And so there was a question about a bit of a leading question, I, I think. Uh, do you consider yourself the greatest male tennis player of the open era? Do you think one of you three will actually break Margaret Court's record of 24 single slams at one stage? And so Djokovic's answer, I really want to focus just on the, um, these, this, this first sentence here. I consider myself best, and I believe that I am the best. Otherwise, I wouldn't be talking confidently about winning slams and making history. So one might hear say, somebody say, like, hey, I'm the best. And perhaps you're thinking, well, that's a bit cocky, uh, maybe a bit arrogant and so forth. But it immediately made me think of um, uh, a paper that was written in the early 2000s about what is mental toughness. And that paper was a study of elite athletes and what they believe mental toughness is and what are like the important attributes of it. And one of those top uh, important attributes was this idea of having this unshakable self-belief that you are better than your opponents and that there are things that distinguish you and make you better than your opponents. And so when we think about this, there's sort of um, this line between, say, confidence and cockiness or confidence and arrogance. And Djokovic, he's, he's on that line, uh, but he's on the right side of it. He's got this self-belief that he is the best. And that serves him well in big moments. And in fact, after the 2019 Wimbledon win against Federer, he even said it in that press conference that when he was down in the fifth and, and struggling mentally in the fifth, he had to remind himself that he was the better player and that he deserved to be there in that moment. And so this is a really key aspect of self-belief. And the one piece that I like from that particular paper or study is the word unshakable. Now, for all of us, is it really ever truly unshakable? Probably not. But can we get it to a place where it's, you know, unshakable 98% of the time? Uh, then you can go out there and believe that you're always going to win. Um, it, you may not always be able to pull it off. But I think when we look at that line between confidence and arrogance and why Djokovic is on the right side of it, is because he always works really hard. Everything he's doing off the court is to be the best. He doesn't just assume I am the best, therefore I don't need to work. He's like, yeah, I'm the best, and everything I do is about keeping me here and, and proving that this is where I, I should be. Um, so I thought that that was a really interesting quote. You know, he does go on to say about the greatest of all time, he says, uh, you know, but whether I'm the greatest of all time or not, I leave that debate to other people. Um, and then he gets into a little bit how it's so difficult to compare different eras of tennis, which he, he's 100% right. So, yeah, those are debates for other people to talk about, you know, who's the greatest of all time. And whether that's even a, a, a valuable discussion, I think is debatable in itself. Um, but is, is Novak Djokovic the best player right now? Uh, absolutely. He knows it. 
And that's actually, I think, uh, a part of his success. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's important for, for everybody listening, all, all tennis players, all athletes out there, um, to try to embody at least a piece of that. Yeah. That you want to have your, you want your self belief to be unshakable in that, regardless of what's going on in your life, regardless of what's going on in that particular day, that you believe that you could do it. And to me, it's a lot about believing that you can figure it out on the, that you can figure it out as you go. Um, that you have the tools, you have the ability to manage the, the ups and downs, the, the curveballs that life can throw at you, the curveballs that a match might throw at you, and that you are equipped and that you can be resilient. Because to me, I, I come back to, you know, it's not always going to be easy. It's not always pretty. But having that ability and having that belief that you can figure it out, that you, um, that, that, that you can manage the situation is is what what can be the difference maker um so no i i, I really like this and I, I feel that um yeah he is yeah we can we can put that historical um conversation to the side right now or even as you said he, he, even whether it's helpful to have that conversation or important but um yes certainly an understanding that um yeah, that that you need to uh, be be able to believe in in yourself to the to this point that it, you believe that you're capable. You're capable of winning, and to me, that really comes back to um, capable of dealing with the ups and downs. Capable of, let's say, you're in a match and your opponent starts playing unbelievable tennis. You know that hey, this. Is this is going to have a start and this is going to have a finish. This won't last forever. I'm not going to get in my own head and think, oh, it's just not my day today. Or um, on the other side of things, maybe you start off, you know, really slow, like we've seen from Djokovic in this match against Berrettini, like perhaps we saw from Pliskova in the match against Barty. But you maintain that self-belief in yourself and know that, hey, I – I've started off slow before. I know how to handle this. Um, I need to find my rhythm here. But rather than getting caught up in the emotions or the frustrations of that moment, you're able to slow things down perhaps and think clearly and still have that self-belief in yourself to find a way to get the job done. Yeah, you don't panic. Yep. You can you can kind of stay more in the moment, right? We were just talking about being more in the present and uh, – you know, I think that's all connected. If you, if you believe you can win, then you know that, well, just one point at a time, I find my game, I can get back into it. I, I think there's always this optimism that you're going to find your game at some point yep. when, you, when you have that total self-belief and, 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 and you keep doing it. Or you, you do as Jack Nicholas said, you just start using the mental and emotional skills just to compete with whatever you've got on this given day. And so, um, but a lot of that comes from that self-belief. And I think when we don't have that, when we don't have that confidence, that's when panic sets in, um, negative self-talk, start to criticize yourself, start to doubt who you are as a player or your abilities. Um, and, and things can go off the rails pretty quickly after that. Um, so 
and again, another great example. I think that's why I love looking at these these press conferences that Djokovic has because he, he always has some really good things for us to learn from because he's not afraid to be human yep. about this stuff. You know, he admitted that he was nervous uh, prior to the match, felt like he played a little too defensively maybe in that first set, et cetera. Um, you know, I guess, I guess I feel like we don't necessarily get all that kind of stuff from everybody else. Um, and, and it's great to hear how he, he deals with it and overcomes it. And, and here he is again. Um, he's got three, three grand slams this year, looking for number four in, in, in New York. Yeah, looking for number four, um, also looking to break the record, of the, the men's record, we should, um, I should say. But uh, yeah, looking to break that record and to surpass Federer and Nadal, um, a feat that maybe most wouldn't have imagined even just a couple of years ago. Yeah, um, for sure. So that's our show for today. Thank you all for listening. For more on today's show, please check out the show notes. If you have any feedback or questions for Josh or me, please email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use the Twitter hashtag tennisiq. Additionally, please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice, including YouTube, so you can be notified of new episodes. You can also check out our Instagram page. Thanks again, and we will talk to you soon in our next episode.